Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people from the wonderful world of education who interest and inspire me. Now, 12 months ago, I did an experimental episode of the podcast where I asked a whole host of my favourite people one question. What did you learn this year? Now, that slice of advice episode proved very popular, and as such, the crowd have demanded more. So, never wishing to deprive my public, I've got the band back together again to answer, yep, the exact same question. What did you learn this year? Well, if it ain't broke... Now, just before we dive into the episode itself, I need to say something very important. I invited 20 females to contribute to this episode, but unfortunately, for a wide variety of reasons, only 8 have chosen to do so. Now, this is a real shame, as it means we actually have a really male-dominated roster of guests. Female representation is something that Joe Morgan and I have discussed at length, and something I actively try to tackle in the main episodes of the show. I am aware it's a huge issue, and I know that an episode like this does not help. Problem is, I'm not too sure what the solution is, and I did think really hard about scrapping this episode. But I just want to make you, my dear listeners, know that I am aware of the problem, and I'm trying my best to think of a solution. Anyway, I really hope that does not diminish your enjoyment of what really is a golden nugget filled episode of the podcast, where you will hear from household names and those perhaps not so familiar as they reflect upon what they have learned personally in the last 12 months. We have primary specialists, secondary specialists, maths teachers, English teachers, history teachers, head teachers, chief examiners, Scots, Americans, Australians, information designers, behaviour czars, university challenge winners, and Dylan William. Whew, the range of topics covered is incredible. My hope is that these reflections do for you exactly what they did for me. Cause you to pause and reflect both on things that went well and did not go so well this year and give you some food for thought and inspiration going forward. You can find the running order of the contributors in the show notes, which might make navigating back and forward a bit easier, as well as the Twitter handles of the guests so you can follow them if you don't already. I'll be back at the end of the show with my own answer to the question, but for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Slice of Advice 2019. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, my name is Adam Boxer. I'm a science teacher in North London. You can find me on Twitter at AdamBoxer1 um, and I blog as well at a chemicalorthodoxy.wordpress.com. Uh, I've learned an absolute ton of stuff this year, some kind of small ideas, some big ideas. Um, I think the one thing that stood out for me uh, has been working for some people who are very very excellent at their job at the beginning of the year I started with a new year group and the head of year is really quite amazing and she works incredibly hard um, shows great attention to detail is driven by care for the students and the desire 
to see them succeed in the best way that they can. And what I kind of felt when I started working for her was that I kind of just implicitly raised my game, that just knowing that there was someone who was doing a really, really great job and was paying attention to things, it meant that I sort of knew that if I picked up on stuff or I sent an email or if I followed through with things, I felt like I was part of something that really, really worked and was really, really functional. And I, 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 find myself, I found myself rising to that. That was then repeated because um, the head of year actually went off on maternity leave and was replaced by someone who is just as good and just as effective. Uh, and I felt again that kind of um, being being part of a part of a team that's really just swimming in the same direction, everyone working together, and that's all driven by someone who was not being explicit about that at all, but just by showing attention to detail, working hard, trying to be as uh, effective as possible, that made a really, really big difference to me. Hello, my name is Alex Quigley. I work at the Education Endowment Foundation and I also write for teachers, including books like Closing the Vocabulary Gap. You can find me on Twitter at hunting english um i've learned lots of things this year um one of the um areas that i've thought harder about is the really difficult gnarly problem of making positive changes in school uh, one quote really stood out for me from hargreaves and fink from their book sustainable leadership and that quote is change in education is easy to propose hard to implement and extraordinarily difficult to sustain Working as I do with lots of schools and school leaders and, and seeing lots of projects at the Education Endowment Foundation being initiated and evaluated, I see firsthand just how hard it is to absorb new knowledge, to make small habitual changes to practice that can have significant gains for pupils. Um, Part of that knowledge has been built with other wider reading. So the Education Endowment Foundation Guidance Report um, put in evidence to work, which is about implementation, really struck home for me, um, again, about the importance of trying to sustain change. And as many schools now face those external challenges, um, issues around literacy, issues around mathematics, high stakes examinations, perhaps the changing frameworks for Ofsted, this capability to make a change, to sustain it, um, becomes really pressing as ever. Um, I don't think there are any easy quick fixes, but in that guidance report, there's a process around change um, that stands out as useful. And I think that process um, distilled into four steps. So firstly, explore. So um, looking at the evidence, looking at internally, evidence in the school, um, teacher perspectives, student voice, data, useful data, of course. Um, and then that external evidence from literature reviews, it might be research projects, it might be articles um, that people have read and, and insights from researchers and, and people um, online. That exploration phase um, is always quite common, but we know that schools are time poor, teachers are time poor, so it's often squeezed. Um, then the next phase of that process from the guidance is to prepare 
and that is about thorough planning it's about um strong um processes of monitoring change um often you know these are things that school leaders have not been given training in we're just expected to kind of you know work work really hard and make good good things happen um and the phase following prepare is deliver and i think this is what schools are really familiar with this kind of you know put all our energy into something make a change deliver um get better results and and as we move into the summer break and thinking get thinking about september that urge to deliver changes becomes really salient but every school teacher knows that what gets said on the 5th of september um often by as early as october or november priorities have shifted kind of claims are weakened and actually people can just fall back into um, core habits so then the last part of the process from the guidance report and implementation is about sustain and sustaining change um goes right back to um that quote um i stated earlier from hargreaves and this really is the tricky bit and it takes good evaluation good monitoring it takes intellectual honesty um from school leaders around what's really happening um it takes really hard work and probably one of the simple but difficult um facts we need to try and apply is that to do good sustainable change we need to prioritize and probably do fewer things better um that's one of the hardest things to do in a school with so many pressing needs but do it we must um so i'm learning more about follow on support coaching the different tools for trying to support changes in school for teachers to make even the smallest of of habit changes um there's hard work to do there's more to learn um thank you and hopefully that little slice of learning was useful podcast listeners my name is Amir Arazu I'm vice principal at Horizon Community College in Barnsley um, my slice of advice this year one of the biggest things that came through the work of John Hattie and for the EF toolkit and has been on the scene for a number of years now but is still worth exploring if you haven't done so already is the notion of metacognition this idea that students think about their own learning where they've been successful, where they've not been so successful and really taking the time and giving students the real opportunity to reflect on their efforts and reflect on the feedback given, not just doing you know, questions or changes to work or other actions in response to how they perform an assessment, but actually instead taking the time to compare their work with model dances, compare their work with the feedback given by a, a member of staff. And in, in our case, getting them to write about where they went wrong and what they need to improve on and how they're going to improve and what they need to remember for next time. It's been really effective in our process of implementing low stakes assessment across subjects. And students are really starting to see now the power of that reflection time and the impact it has on their longer term learning. It's still a long way long way to go. This it's still a process that requires a lot of training for, for staff and for students. I myself, as a teacher for who's been around for about in the in the education for about fifteen years now, 
I've I've had to really think about my practice and 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 not just show students where they've gone wrong, but really getting to think about why they've gone wrong and the thought processes around solutions and kind of develop that toolkit that students will have when they go into the the big assessments at the end of year 11 in in terms of the real thing. My year 10s are are really starting to get the idea and and it's starting to bear fruit and it will take a lot longer but we're starting to roll this out across all our year groups and I'm I'm absolutely certain that this is going to have a real impact in terms of their progress and, and really challenge students in terms of our expectations of them and their expectations of themselves. Being a reflective practitioner as a teacher, as we know, is really powerful, but getting students to be really reflective in terms of their practice will make a massive difference. As, as I say, it's not something new. Metacognition and, and learning to learn has, has, has been a notion that's been around for a long time, but it's never a, 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 a bad thing to, to look back at that practice and say, are we doing it effectively and how can we drive students forward in order to do that? Thanks very much and I look forward to continuing hearing further podcasts and uh, maybe taking part again soon. Thank you. Hello, my name's Andrew Percival. I'm Deputy Head Teacher at Stanley Road Primary School in Oldham. And on Twitter, I'm at Primary Percival. This year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the distinction between learning and performance, and it's really had a big influence on my thinking over the course of the year. So I first heard about this distinction uh, a few years ago when I read about Professor Rob Coe's Poor Proxies for Learning, and he describes certain behaviours that senior leaders might see in lessons and then infer that learning was taking place. Things like students being busy, students getting lots of questions right, being engaged, calm classroom environment. And his point being that observing these things is no guarantee that learning is actually taking place, even though it feels like it might. Then I read around the idea with the work from the Bjorks and Nick Soderstrom, and their main argument is that learning is invisible, So what we see in lessons is performance rather than learning. So in a maths lesson, you spend a decent amount of time talking about, say, perimeter, and you give out some questions on perimeter after you've just shown them exactly what to do. And then when they get them right, we think, great, they've learned perimeter. And we just conflate performance with learning. They got all the questions right, so they must have learned perimeter today. Never mind, six months' time, you ask them about it, and they haven't got a clue. Although I've known this idea for a while, this year I've really begun to think about the implications for being a school leader and making decisions about what happens in school in light of this distinction. So I want to just talk about a couple of those ideas now. Okay, so first I want to talk about monitoring and lesson observations and book scrutiny. When you accept that learning's invisible, then you also have to accept that you probably can't make comments on whether children learn anything in a particular lesson observation. I'm not saying that watching teaching's a waste of time. It might tell you other things which are useful and it might support teacher development, but we have to be really cautious if we start talking about what children learned in the lesson. I don't think we can really see the impact of that lesson while it's happening. We can only know this a few months down the line or maybe even years later. And this is equally true of book scrutiny as pupils' books don't 
show learning well, what they show is performance, how well children performed in any given lesson or a sequence of lessons. So there's a note of caution about the validity of the inferences that we might make about lesson observations and book scrutiny. The second thing I want to talk about is assessment and tracking systems. So when we think about learning and performance, when can we confidently say that children actually know something? When they get everything right in a lesson, when we ask them the next day, the next week, the next month. And I don't think there's a definitive answer here, but I do know that we should be very cautious about this. And this causes significant problems for tracking systems. It really throws into doubt the concept of objective level tracking. So we used to give teachers a list of say 30 maths objectives to cover in a year. And we'd ask teachers to record whether pupils had achieved them and to what depth. So we now don't do this as we think it's practically meaningless. When do you tick the box to say they learned it? You know, I do wonder whether in September we should give the year six teacher the year five objectives and get them to assess whether the children really know that content. I'm being a bit flippant there, don't do that. So for me, the distinction between learning and performance is such a simple idea, but it has far reaching consequences for decision making in schools. And this year, it's really prompted me to question things which I previously believed to be true about teaching. I hope that was useful. Thanks, Craig. Hello, my name is Andy Lutwich and I'm a math teacher from Sussex and on Twitter I am at Andy Lutwich, which is A-N-D-Y-L-U-T-W-Y-C-H-E. Like I say, if you, I normally say to the students, it sounds like light switch, so there you go. Anyway, what have I learned this year? Well, as Lenny Kravitz once said, it ain't over till it's over. And what I've learned this year is, and I probably should have always known this if I'm totally honest, is there's no point rushing to get to the end of what I'm supposed to cover um, if the, the class don't actually understand it. Because all I'm doing is storing up bigger problems for later on down the line. So whilst obviously ideally, you know, I, I have to get the whole scheme of work um, complete, if they understand everything that we've covered, then actually the later stuff, the it's supposedly more complicated stuff, is actually easier to cover. So I'd rather stick with something that lasts a bit longer. So I've spent a little bit of time on, uh, I don't know, pie charts, for example. Now, pie charts are really easy, but actually, can we convert a pie chart to a bar chart? Can we can we do it the other way around? All that sort of stuff. And, and really delving deep and, and, and going into it, you know, what does this mean? And and that I think is going to be invaluable in the, in the long run. Now, obviously, it remains to be seen um, if uh, if if it works. But ultimately, a certain someone's book um, talked to me about cognitive load theory and um, and basically not trying to cram too much into one lesson, which is always a temptation when you're getting near to half term. Oh, you know, I've got all this all this stuff to cover before half term. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we better be quick. But if they don't understand it, what's the point? You might as well have not covered it. And so therefore, I'd rather take my time and make sure they understand it. Um, and and also on another point, uh, I, I t I'm trying really, really hard not to talk whilst they should be doing some work. Now, I can't promise that I'm perfect. At, well, not, I know I'm not perfect at it. Um, and the gospel of Depeche Mode needs to be spread, but I am doing less of it, or I hope I'm doing less of it anyway. So um, there you go. That's a certain someone's book that um, I'm ashamed to say I haven't finished yet, but I'm, I'm getting there.
Second thing I've done is I've uh, actually done a load of sessions with uh, a small group of year sixes. Now, a local primary school has been very kind and very trusting, actually, uh, possibly um, uh, naively, one could argue, um, uh, to let me uh, spend an hour a week with a group of year six kids. And it's been brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Their enthusiasm, absolutely inspirational. And, and the stuff I've learned, their mental arithmetic skills are fantastic, secondary teachers. Honestly, primary school kids, their mental arithmetic, brilliant. You probably already realise this. I, 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 have, I probably did realise it, but didn't realise it, if you know what I mean. I'd, they're brilliant. So now, my year sevens, we have calculator-free weeks. We have um, calculator-free half terms, actually. I mean, we had a, a number half term, which... Um, which I didn't allow them to use a calculator, and um, and and actually I think it made them better. Now, I, w- it remains to be seen, obviously, uh, with with all that sort of stuff. But but it's the enthusiasm and little bit little competitions, and you know I, I do these silly code breaker joke things, and and the kids seem to like them. They like getting to the end. The, the jokes are terrible, absolutely terrible. They're dad jokes. In fact, uh, somebody gave me a dad joke book. One of my year sevens gave me a dad joke book. Um, this year, so you know, which I, I obviously uh, utilised a little bit, but um, you know, it, it's we we need to harness this stuff and keep the enthusiasm going, and 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 it they they're so happy to challenge themselves, it, it's genuinely inspirational, and I know my primary colleagues. Uh, work really hard. I've I've actually got a massively renewed respect. I always had respect for primary colleagues, but I I think they're absolute um, absolutely brilliant. I do, can't fault them. They do their best, and um and and uh, and I know that they're inspiring these, these these children. I see one one hour a week. They're seeing for however many hours it is, twenty hours a week or whatever. And and you know they, these kids have the enthusiasm, and I and and I get to tap into that, and it's truly brilliant but it's meant that I've changed my teaching and I now know far more deeply what they already come up to school knowing and uh, and and uh, hopefully it will really inform my teaching in the future now I enthusiasm is absolutely key for me for for progression and and you know if you believe you can do it and if you really want to do it then then you're actually likely to do it actually and and that's what's been really inspirational and that's what I've learned this year and I've done this entire thing without mentioning exams so there you go Hello everybody, my name is Ben Gordon, I am assistant principal of a secondary school in Blackpool and you can find me on Twitter at at MathsMrGordon. The thing that I've learnt this year is that moving schools is bloody difficult. I'm in the unique position of moving school for the first time this year and it is my first year this year on the senior leadership team so I've been seconded for three years. Uh, to try and help uh, lead the maths department at my current school um, to better places. Now, the reason why it's so difficult uh, moving school is that leadership is very, very much um, domain-specific. The knowledge that you need is domain-specific. So I have gone from a school where I knew the children very well, I knew the staff very well, um, I 
sort of developed my craft and the teach and learning style that this school sort of were looking for. And I've now moved to a school where I knew virtually no one, uh, didn't know the children, but hopefully uh, I had the knowledge um, to lead the department in terms of their teaching and learning and, and getting better outcomes. Now, this is backed up by a study that was done in New York um, between 2010 and 1999, where they actually looked at what, what affects student outcomes in terms of um, changes in, in teachers. And the least effective teacher you can have, no surprise here, is somebody that's brand new to the profession. The second most um, sort of negative effect was a teacher that had just changed school. So it was a teacher new to the school. And then the third was a teacher that they refer to as churning. So that means you are changing grade. So you are either moving from a year two to a year three of your primary school, or you might be um, largely teaching key stage three, and then you, you suddenly have to teach key stage four or take a GCSE class through in year 11, for example. Um, and, and this really resonates with me because... Um, you know, I, I do feel there probably has been a dip in my effectiveness through no fault of my own, um, just because I am I am moving school and it's a new environment and you're trying to build those relationships with the children again. Also, very importantly, as a leader, trying to build relationship with staff and trying to get their trust um, that you are, you know, the person who's going to help move the department forward. So what are my reflections on this? Well, the first reflection is that I definitely, definitely needed help this year, even though I am um, a leader and even though um, I am the person who's coming to help, um, you know, implement some changes and support staff. Um, I definitely needed help this year as well. And I think acknowledging that first and foremost is really important. So getting around people who have that domain specific knowledge about the school, about the children, about the staff, um, who works well with who, who has um, certain attitudes towards certain things, who has certain attitudes towards change uh, which can be scary for some people um, and just really really trying to make sure that my knowledge improved as, as quickly as possible so that I could make informed decisions. The second thing is um, that we have to be aware of people who are maybe early in their career and are experiencing th new things for the first time. So if you look at that study in terms of changing grade, I, I think of the non-specialists that are at our school um, who have taught sort of low ability year nine classes this year. And we've made the decision to keep them teaching year nine low ability um, classes next year because they've accumulated skills and knowledge about those types of groups um, that I think could be used next year as well. We've also assigned our lead practitioner to work with both of those teachers um, so that they can have meetings together and discuss um, what they're going to be doing in those lessons. Uh, so I think that's really, really important. Um, I think moving school um, and trying to implement change, one of the most important things is try and find the bright spots. There are tons of great teachers um, in requires improvement schools. There are tons of good, good teachers in uh, special measures schools. I think trying to find them and getting them on board and helping them to model the changes that you uh, want to implement. Uh, keeping the change small as well so it's manageable, so we don't overload staff. Um, and then if you want to scale up that change, treating it as a, as a new initiative and starting the implementation cycle again, I'd really recommend looking at the EEF guidance on implementation uh, for people who are thinking about making change or maybe starting at a new school.
So, yeah, I, I, I've probably learned more this year, which I can't condense into five minutes, um, through moving school. Uh, and one thing that I will say is that um, moving to a requires improvement school, um, you know, that was in special measures, has really opened my eyes to how bloody hard working lots and lots of those staff are and how committed they are to helping the life chances of these young people and if anybody is moving school or is going to be new to senior leadership and has any concerns then please get in touch with me on twitter and i will try my best um to to give you some guidance or help you learn from my mistakes this year okay thanks everyone have a lovely summer a Craig Barton-like intro. Uh, my name is Ben Rooney. I am at Ben J Rooney on Twitter, uh, and I'm a maths teacher in Chelmsford. This year, one of the things I've been working on mostly is uh, feedback. Um, I am a programmer. I can I write code, so I have written a little program for myself. But you could do the same thing in Word that produces a nice little form for students after each homework. And um, what's nice about it is it's very structured. Um, it looks like it's individual to each story, but in fact, it's pretty much whole class feedback. There's about four or five comments that you end up cutting and pasting each time. It's quite well structured. There's a number of panels on it. Particularly useful uh, are the, is the panel at the bottom, which students have to fill in themselves. Uh, and it says, what will I do to improve? Um, and then they have to write a comment in that. And I do check that. Um, I do check that when I next take the books in. Um, otherwise, there are panels on general assessment of the homework, you know, one thing or another. Um, there's a nice little panel. I'm a bit of a stickler for presentation. Um, so there's a checkbox in there that says whether they've, you know, underline headlines, that kind of thing. Um, the other good thing about it is that it is all uh, I get to keep a copy of every comment I have written so I can look back uh, at a student's comments over the year and just see is the same thing coming up time and time again. So that's that's very effective. Um, print them out on orange paper stuck in the book. So they are very uh, book audit friendly. Um, and then I do check them, as I say, each, each week. So that's been, I think, been quite successful this year. Um, I'm going to tweak them slightly uh, going forward. Um, but that's worked quite nicely. Next year, big thing coming up for me is I've just picked up um, some extra responsibilities, including uh, responsibility for curriculum and assessment. So no biggie. Um, and I'm a bit obsessed at the moment with something called item response theory and uh, Roche tests. So I'm hoping they are going to uh, provide a rather more robust way of assessing information. But Maybe that's something for next year. Hello, my name is Berkeley Everett. I'm a K5 math coach, and my Twitter handle is at Berkeley Everett, spelled just like the University in California or Berkeley Square in London. My website is mathvisuals.wordpress.com. I want to tell you about two tasks I've worked with this last year, open questions from Marion Small and counting collections, both of which allow you to learn math with your students. 
So here's an example of an open question. Instead of having students solve a problem like 12 is two-thirds of blank, which has one answer, you remove a piece of information and instead you have blank is two-thirds of blank. So now instead of focusing on answers, you're focusing on ideas and relationships. And every time I do this with adult learners or students, I learn something new about fractions and their relationship to multiplication, division, place value, etc. Another great task is counting collections, where the goal is to count a collection of physical objects and record how you counted. Although it sounds like a task for five or six-year-olds, I've seen upper elementary students debating how to record larger collections using algebraic reasoning and notation, all connected to something concrete in front of them. I was visiting one class of eight-year-olds, and two boys were arranging a collection of decorative puffballs into groups of sevens, and I wanted to intervene and encourage them to group by tens, but the beauty of this task is that the students learn for themselves what's efficient and what isn't. So I came back five minutes later, and they told me, counting by sevens was so hard that we put three sevens together to make groups of 21, which was much easier to count by. So check out Open Questions and Counting Collections. Hello, my name is Bobby Seagull. I'm a school maths teacher and a doctorate student in maths education at Cambridge University. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at Bobby underscore Seagull. This year, I've learned about the importance of using popular maths books to capture the imagination of my students. So as a school maths teacher, I realize that we're under pressure to get through the curriculum, to meet our termly, half-termly targets, and make sure that our students ultimately hit their target grades, and that's important. However, we mustn't forget the magic of mathematics and really capturing that for our students. Earlier this year, I was walking down the corridor on the way to the staff room, when one of the students cornered me and said, oh, Mr. Seagull, Mr. Seagull, I said, okay, I'm about to uh, go to the staff room. And then he said to me, sir, I've just been reading your book. And he's told me that he'd got my book out, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers from our school library. And I was quite pleased. And he said he'd read a bit in my book about the maths of football or the maths of actually collecting stickers and how you can use mathematics to uh, estimate how much money it would cost to collect an entire set of stickers. And he was so passionate about that. And when he came back into the lesson and we were doing some work on sequences and adding them up, he seemed a lot more engaged in the subject. So this got me thinking, how can we use what's outside of our curriculum to really engage our students? So since then, I've tried to get students in my higher attaining classes, but it could be for everyone, to read extracts from popular maths books when we're connected to a particular topic. So for example, with a year eight class, we were looking at Pythagoras theorem, and I got them to read an extract from Ian Stewart's 17 Equations That Changed the World, uh, the section on Pythagoras theorem. My school uh, has lots of cricket mad fans. So I got them to read the maths of the Duckworth-Lewis method 
in The Hidden Mathematics of Sport by Rob Eastaway and John Haig. And then with a really sort of really switched on year 10 class, we were looking at concepts of infinity. So I got them to read a few pages from Eugenia Cheng's Beyond Affinity. And what I found was that these opportunities for the kids to read outside of the subject, but on popular maths, really engaged them and brought the subject to life for them, which meant that when I went to teach them the normal maths, they could see actually this can lead them somewhere. So my advice to myself as a teacher, and hopefully that you can maybe consider this as well, is when you're teaching a topic, try and think, are there great popular maths books, be it by someone like Hannah Fry or Alex Bellos or Marcus de Satoy, that you could incorporate you know, a chapter or even just the extract from to really bring your subject to life. Hello, my name's Chris MacDonald and on Twitter I'm ChrisMCD53 and this year I've learned, well, two things. I'm heavily involved with a group called the Junior School Collaboration, or JUSCO. And as part of this group, I've had the opportunity to talk to experts like Dylan William, Professor Becky Allen, Sean Harford, Mary Myatt, uh, Tim Oates and Mick Walker, to name but a few. And what I've learned is that actually people are incredibly generous with their time. And they've taken their time to, to talk to me uh, about curriculum and assessment as a part of a series of think pieces that I've been recording. And it's off the back of one of those think pieces that my second learning point comes. Um, so after reading Daisy Christodoulou's book, Making Good Progress, uh, I became very interested in multiple choice questions. And we took to using them in our school. And actually, we found it was difficult uh, to write a good multiple choice question. And so I was really excited when I had the opportunity to talk to Mick Walker and Tim Oates about the, the art of, of questioning. And during that thing piece, uh, two things came out. One, about questioning, and secondly, about the culture of how questions are asked. And it was Mick that pointed out that actually, as teachers, we don't necessarily give enough time to thinking long and hard enough about the questions we're going to ask. And that when we do ask a question, we actually don't give enough time uh, for the children to, to respond. And the children are actually really quite adept at knowing when the teacher is under pressure to, to move on, maybe because there's focus on a lesson having a certain level of pace. And so actually children notice that and then they don't volunteer answers because they know really the teacher doesn't want to spend too long um, taking answers. The other thing that came out was around how teachers respond to answers. And as if a teacher overly praises a correct answer, then this can put unnecessary pressures on others within the class. And it also makes others less likely to engage. So a teacher finds themselves questioning the same five children. Mick pointed out that for a teacher, 
asking a question introduces a moment of risk. So teachers tend to ask closed questions to lessen the risk. And really an open question would be would be better. So as I said, we, we were looking at multiple choice questions in, in my school. And Tim points out that while diagnostic questions are incredibly powerful, they're also very tricky to write. He gives an example that um, often with multiple choice questions, the correct answer will be just one word, whereas incorrect answers or distractors may be several words. So it becomes rather easy for children to spot the, the correct answer. And he gives a simple tip for teachers in writing distractors for diagnostic multiple choice questions. And it's this. He says, what you do is you start off by asking a short answer question. But you don't indicate if any of the responses that you get are correct. And you collect all of the children's responses. And in there will be the correct answer. But there will also be the gold dust of common misconceptions. And these misconceptions can then be used as distractors in future multiple choice questions. And Tim points out that actually this method is used by really good test developers. So there's my learning tip from the show. Hello, my name is Claire Seeley. Uh, I'm a primary school head teacher, and uh, on Twitter, I'm at Claire Seeley. And this year, I've learned about pupil book talks. Pupil book talks are a way of finding out what children have been learning in their lessons in a way that's so much better than doing the sort of traditional work survey type activity. I learned about pupil talk, uh, book talks uh, from Alex Bedford. Now he's on Twitter and on Twitter he's at Baron Bedford. And what his approach does is, it's really simple, but very good, is instead of looking at books away from the children, you will ask a teacher to send three children across a range of prior attainment, each with their books, for example, they might bring their history, their geography and their English books. And then once you're there, you have a good chat with them and you say, hey, can you look in your books and show me something you found particularly exciting or interesting this year or something that you're really proud of? And then you take it from there. And what happens is usually after uh, a little, it's probably a bit stilted for the first minute or so, but soon the children riff off each other and use their books to cue their memories and then a tsunami of knowledge comes out as as they they tell you all the different things they know uh, to do it well it's good if you've at least know a little bit about whatever it is they're, sub, they're studying so you might need to bone up a bit on the anglo-saxons or or on volcanoes or something so you can ask them uh, questions about it not in a, a grinning way at all but you know doing that thing where you act a bit dumb and say oh so so where did the anglo-saxons come from or or, or where does lava come from and, and just let them tell you and you will see 
what they know and what they understand. But you'll also see if they don't really remember much about what they were learning. And then it all becomes a little bit stilted and difficult. So you can really see how effective it is and how effective what they've learned has been. You can even do it with maths. Um, we did it a bit differently with maths. I said, so show me some maths you found a bit tricky at first, but now you really understand. And then we had a whiteboard and a whiteboard pen in my room and they taught me. And again, I acted a bit silly like oh so so when you multiply by 10 why 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 do the digits move or whatever it is and they explain to you and you can see that they really understand it so that's called pupil book talks it's a great way of seeing what children have learned it beats work surveys hands down i'm never going to do work surveys again without the children there because they don't really really tell you whether they've learned things or not it's really difficult to work out uh what they really understand and I'd really recommend them. Hi, I'm Dan Piercy. I'm the head of maths at Genswell Academy in Switzerland and on Twitter, I'm at Daniel Piercy. In this reflection, I've decided to focus on example problem pairs given that it's probably the most consistent pedagogical approach I've implemented this year. Generally speaking, I've run them in a similar way to how Craig set them out in his book, with a silent teacher word example, followed by a minimally different question on mini whiteboards. It's an incredibly efficient approach, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. But my concern on specific occasions is similar to something Greg Ashman mentioned in a previous post, and that's that they don't necessarily induce any desirable difficulty. So I'll spend some time musing on some of the things I've read and thought about in this regard. Firstly, Michael Pershin discussed his implementation in a recent podcast episode, which involves having students individually analyse a word example on paper. This, I think, might aid independent development, although with a possible increase in cognitive load due to the entire example presented in one go rather than being broken up. So there'll have to be some brief explicit instruction on how to manage this, I think. I don't think it'll be as efficient, but with the right group, the right conditions, the right problems, it could improve other worthwhile study skills. Secondly, I'd like to trial more variations of example problem pairs. I recently read Emma McRae's Making Every Maths Lesson Count, which was great by the way, and I specifically like the section on example problem pairs. In the book, Emma refers to incomplete example problem pairs, in which a missing step can be at the beginning, middle or end. This has been shown to have high effect, especially, with com especially when combined with, with uh, student self-explanation. It's a technique I've heard more recently as backwards fading that both Mark McCourt and Chris McGrain have described in their podcast episodes. There's also incorrect worked examples in which students must identify what is incorrect before trying a similar problem, and also strategy comparison worked examples in which a number of different methodologies are presented to students before they're asked to do a problem either using their preferred strategy or encouraged to use one of the strategies set out. Nothing hugely new there, but a good reminder to use different approaches for differing objectives. Different variations in example problem pairs may induce some desirable difficulty and promote deeper thinking, which is why I'd like to do more of them. But Emma does make it clear that starting with correct example problem pairs is beneficial to reduce confusion and that being explicit about the type of example problem pairs students are doing, but also how you want the students to approach them is really important, especially for incorrect example problem pairs. 
More recently, I've, I've also wondered about turning the sequence round to have students do problem example pairs, which is a result of digging into Kapoor's work on productive failure, that's shown when which, which shown when students try a problem that's just out of their reach, they become more attuned to what they know and don't know that aids learning the instructional phase. Some initial research has shown that if the instructional phase draws on students' solutions, it can have greater benefit for student learning. And so using strategy comparison examples generated by the students could work well in this model. I should also note that predictive failure seems to be more effective with conceptual-based tasks rather than procedural ones. I imagine I'm not alone in conjecturing that problem example pairs are more suitable or a more suitable pedagogical sequence for higher attaining students who have high enough levels of motivation to persist with the problems, but also high enough knowledge foundations to have a good stab at the problem in the first place and benefit from the generation effect. I googled whether anyone had looked into problem example pairs, and there is some interesting initial research from Coppens et al. I was really surprised that they found no difference in the test performance of both high attaining students and low attaining students if the students were given example problem pairs or if they were given problem example pairs. However, given that the research was conducted with puzzle-like problems, they speculated the students didn't lose motivation with a failed problem-solving attempt because they were curious about the solution strategy afterwards, which might not be the case for more procedural problems that are more common in an example problem pair sequence. Also, given that the students were primary age, their motivation thresholds might be different to students of secondary age. Indeed, Van Gogh et al found that problem, example problem pairs resulted in increased test performance over problem example pairs in a very specific secondary setting, and also that less effort is expended when, when learning with example problem pairs, i.e. that they're more efficient. So whilst problem example pairs may only produce similar test performance under quite specific conditions, they could be useful in some scenarios. There's quite a lot to ponder there. Ultimately, if we want to aid the development of students as thinkers and mathematicians, then I think that utilising greater variation in example problem pairs and also using problem example pairs in the right conditions will provide additional pedagogical tools to help meet this aim. Thanks. Clark. I'm a maths teacher and the teaching and learning coordinator at an international school in Lima, Peru. On Twitter, I'm at InteractMaths. There's quite a few things I've learned this year, and actually recently I posted a blog post uh, called My High Five that you can find at www.interactive-maths.com forward slash blog forward slash my dash high dash five. But Today I wanted to talk about something that wasn't on that post, and that's my use of booklets and lesson sheets. So over the last year and a little bit, I've started using uh, booklets with my IGCSE class and lesson sheets with my IB classes. And I found quite a lot of benefits to this, uh, particularly for the booklets. Um, I, I plan much more uh, as a whole unit. Um, in depth where the progression uh, of the unit is going. With the lesson sheets as well, uh, I do do that. I plan them all before I start the unit rather than as I go. Um, and a lot more thought goes into what's going to be included on them than I probably included uh, previously to using these. And what I do is I break up 
a unit into individual skills ranging from maybe three or four skills to 20 skills depending on the unit and each skill has a what I call a, a get ready or a requires prior knowledge um, just something that links back to previous things they they've learned that they're going to need for that skill it's got some space for them to take some notes in IB it's just a blank space but in IGCSE I give in some complete the sentence style notes and then example problem pairs so examples and then a your turn um, in IGCSE for the booklets I have them next to each other side by side the example and then the your turn in the IB ones I'm doing them one below the other because they need more space to, to answer the questions um, and then some practice questions um, in the lesson sheets for IB it tends to just be a page number to the to the textbook and the ebooks that we use um, and for GCSE it tends to be uh, resources in the booklets so things like Mr Corbett maths um, or sometimes from the textbook and things from variation theory um, maths friends uh, Don Stewart, all the big ones. I, I try and I, I put them in there um, so that they're all there. I won't use all of those um, whilst I'm teaching it, but I've got them there available if I want to make use of them. Then when I'm planning, I can actually write on the booklet or the sheet, write out all the solutions. I also write down questions that I want to ask that aren't there. Um, anything important that I want to mention, even who I want to ask certain questions to, if I know that they've been struggling with something. Then when it comes to the lesson, I place it under a visualizer. Um, I have a copy of my own copy of the booklet or the lesson sheet. I put it under the visualizer, model the examples on the same sheet that they're using. So they get to see the layout that I'm using on paper and then they copy it down onto their one. Um, and then they have a go at the your turn problem, obviously. Um, students really, really like the booklets. They can annotate the examples. It means they don't have to write down the question. It means they've got everything. They really find it uh, beneficial for their organization. Um, they can look back into the booklets and things aren't getting lost um, over a year in and they all have most of their booklets. And they really appreciate them. They, they, they really think they're a useful uh, resource for them. Um, so I'm definitely going to continue doing that, uh, using booklets and lesson sheets for organizing my lessons. And if you've never done it, uh, I would highly recommend it's something to consider giving a go. Hi, my name is David. I am a curriculum specialist. I've been in education for about 26 years. I run workshops for teachers and I'm all over Twitter. On Twitter, I am at David Weiss. Been doing a lot of thinking recently about how teachers can learn from what they do on a daily basis, given that they work in almost virtual isolation from each other. And I listened to this podcast where Craig Barton interviews Ann Watson and John Mason, basically mostly about variation theory. Variation theory being the idea that when some elements of some idea are helped constant and other elements are varied, the elements that vary stand out and we're more likely to be discerned or noticed by whoever is looking at the object. Though, then I remembered this paper I read about instructional activities uh, written by Magdalene Lampert and 
Filippo Graziani called instructional activities as a tool for teachers and teachers educators learning. And in that paper, they define something called an instructional activity, which is a design for interaction that organizes classroom activities. Instructional routines are instructional activities that are repeated in the same way over time. And I've done a lot of work around instructional routines and learning how to use an instructional routine as a tool for teacher learning, but I hadn't really connected it quite as strongly to variation theory. So the idea of an instructional routine is you have this way of teaching students that's sort of routinized so that each time you use the routine, the steps are basically the same. The theory being that you can take a way of teaching and just plunk different tasks into that teaching and so keep the sum aspect of your teaching constant while varying the mathematics and, and varying how kids are exposed to the mathematics. So I was working with this teacher and he was doing one of these routines and at the end of the routine, you'd have kids write a reflection using a prompt. Paying attention to blank is helpful because blank. And he was getting responses like paying attention to Stephen is helpful because he always has the answer, which you know might be true, but it's not mathematically helpful. So he varied his reflection. He changed his reflection to paying attention to blank in graphs is helpful because blank. And that drew kids' attention to thinking about a mathematical response to that reflection. And a consequence, of course, of them writing a more mathematical response is that they are thinking more mathematically and they're consequently going to remember more math mathematics as a result. I think the uh, summary of what I learned is that it would be really helpful to learn some instructional routine, like the ones in the book Routines for Reasoning. Get it to the point where you and the students are pretty fluent in the routine. And then pick some element of your practice you want to work on and start varying that within the structure of the routine so that the changes in student learning or performance, which is what you can see, the changes are more visible to you. So it's more obvious to you what your, what your impact is on students. My name is Dylan William. I'm a former professor of education at University College London. And on Twitter, I'm at Dylan William, William spelt with one L. This year, I've learned to be much more skeptical that human beings have any insight into their own learning processes. I've known for many years from the research on self-reports that our own judgments about whether we know something are inaccurate. I know about the Dunning-Kruger effect, whereby people tend to overstate their knowledge of something if they don't know very much. So basically, the less you know about something, the more likely you are to overstate your knowledge. But I think what I've become more convinced of over the last few months is that really we do not know whether we know something as human beings until we try to retrieve it. And we do not know when we are learning. Now, obviously, if we retrieve things from memory successfully, we know that we know it. But the point I want to make is that, in general, we have very poor insights into what we're, whether what we're experiencing will ever get remembered at some later date. I've lost track of the number of times I have planted a plant in my garden, and I haven't bothered 
to label it because I was absolutely certain that I would remember what it was. And yet three weeks later, I haven't got a clue. Now, the fact that I forgot it isn't important nor interesting. It happens all the time. What is interesting is my certainty that I would remember. I believed that I was learning it at that point. And yet three weeks later, it is clear that I didn't learn it. So while I'm very interested in getting students to become more effective learners through getting them to be more active as owners of their own learning, I'm now much more skeptical that we as humans have very much insight into whether what we're experiencing is going to be learned or remembered at some point in the future. Clearly, for very emotional events, where we can remember where we were when we heard certain important or emotionally charged news. But in general, I do not now believe that it's helpful to ask students, are you learning this? Because I don't think they know, and I don't think we as humans know. And so that's why I place even more weight on the importance of evidence sometime after the learning episode about whether what that student experienced has been converted into some long-term change in capability. Hello, my name is Ed Southall and I'm a uh, maths lecturer, PGC teacher trainer, author, all sorts of things. Um, on Twitter I am at SolveMyMaths and this year I have learnt to take a break. So I have learnt a whole load of new things that are either slightly maths related or completely unrelated to maths. Um, I've been learning to draw, I've been uh, getting fit, doing running, um, and really just taking a bit of time away from uh, getting too bogged down with the obsession of maths education, which seems a little counterintuitive to put on this podcast, I'm sure, but uh, yeah, I think for a, for a year or so I was getting a bit too uh, engrossed in it and I've taken a little bit of a step back this year and spent a bit more time with my kids um, and done things for me that have purposefully been slightly detached from education because I think there's a real risk of, I don't know, getting it, it, making it all consuming and forgetting that there's other things going on as well. Um, so I guess my slice of advice is, you know, there's a whole, a whole lot of stuff to absorb in maths education. There's a, there's a million and one ways you can improve. You're always going to be seek, you know, seeking improvement and, and striving to be better. And that's brilliant. Um, but don't forget, don't forget the rest of the stuff that's going on around you. Um, look after yourself and, uh, you know, make sure that you're enjoying everything you do and having lots of fun at the same time. All right, have a good summer. Hello, my name is Graham Cumming and I'm a maths subject advisor for Pearson at Excel. And on Twitter, I'm at Emporium Maths. 
This year, I've learned that mock examinations using past papers have probably become a thing of the past, which is a great shame, since I think that students can learn so much from having a go at trying unseen questions under examination conditions before the real exam itself, and being able to measure that performance against that of last year's actual candidates, for example, through using the grade boundaries and the performance data available. Mock exams can, of course, also be a timely reminder to some students that there's work to be done in the last few months. I think we've now lost the battle of trying to keep past papers and questions off the internet. It's already the case that you can find this summer's papers and their solutions on Twitter and YouTube, and students can usually find those quicker than their teachers can. And yet you wouldn't train for a marathon by taking a bus around the route and waiting till the actual day before you did any running. Um, I think that exam practice is, uh, is much the same. Exam boards can and do produce mock examinations, but we probably can't do so every year. There's also no performance data collected for them and no reliable grade boundaries can be set. So students only get half the experience and don't necessarily know how well or otherwise they've done. Practicing past questions is certainly useful, but there's always the possibility that a mark scheme is at hand when it starts to get tricky so students don't go through that whole process. It will be tough, but students do need to be persuaded that a mock exam is worth doing. Perhaps even tell them which paper or papers it will be and that they should avoid finding answers in advance. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the answer is to that, but uh, I think teachers do need to try. With the new reforms at both GCSE and A-level, students are going to come up against new styles of questions which they won't have seen in past papers and they're going to need the confidence and resilience to tackle them. Examiners do intend to put such questions in um, and a little experience of having tried to answer those beforehand and having learned what worked and would, what didn't I hope would go a long way. Each year there are concerns from teachers about exam questions that they're different from those in the past or are in a different style and in some cases that is deliberate. Now's the time to make use of the fact that there are three exam boards in England. Each produce lots of different questions in different styles. Students need to be exposed to as many as possible so as not to be thrown when they see something of a different style in an examination. Holding a few papers back for their mock exams of course. Hello, my name's Harry Fletcherwood. I work at Ambition Institute, where I lead our fellowship in teacher education. And on Twitter, I'm H Fletcherwood. I got this one from your book, actually, Craig, um, but it's something I've learned more about and become more and more keen on this year. And it's Dan Mayer's headache aspirin method. Mayer says, as a teacher, you want to see yourself as a seller of aspirin. You don't force feed unwilling people aspirin. Your best customer has a headache, not a massive pain, just a mild headache. So induce that headache. So the, he asks us to think, if what's going to be taught is the aspirin, how do I create the headache? One example he gives is mathematical proof. It's essential, but potentially it's tedious for students to just sit there proving things they know are true already. So if proof is the aspirin, doubt is the headache. He advocates giving students a series of theorems to try and prove, some of which are true, some of which are false. Future colleague of mine, Sarah Cottingham, uh, looked at this another way and she said, well, how do we encourage students to want to sh learn more about Shakespeare? 
she thought she might invite students to think about a time when they'd done something irrational and consider their motivations, then introduce Shakespeare's plays as a way, way, way to better understand why people act and think in the way they do, even why they act in supposedly irrational ways. I use this a lot now when I'm working with teachers. We start by discussing and agreeing what the problem is. That gives us a reason to care and a reason to do something. And then trying to work out a solution together is much easier. So the big thing for me this year is don't produce the aspirin until you've induced the headache. Hello, my name is Jamie Tom and I'm on Twitter at teachgratitude1. Uh, this has been my first full year teaching as a parent after my wee boy was born in April last year. I've been really lucky to be able to go down four days this year to spend a day a week looking after him. At the start of the year, uh, I massively struggled with this. I fit perfectly into the single-minded male stereotype. And for my whole teaching career previously, I've been able to apply this focus to teaching and education. As all writers do, I published my book Slow Teaching as a form of self-therapy, trying to work out how to take more of a balanced, less obsessive and more healthy attitude to work. As the year progressed, being a parent started to provide exactly that. I started to realise that sharing classes was not the disaster I perceived it would be, that not marking books in the detail I did before was not destroying my students' learning, and that my lessons didn't need the fluff I might have been previously filling them with. Instead of the previous internal fretting, I felt a new level of healthy detachment from teaching that meant I could come back to work energised and enjoying teaching more. Having something that gives you such immense joy and pleasure also fills you with a, a deep sense of gratitude alongside being absolutely completely knackered. I think that gratitude seeps into the school environment. I think this year I've been much more aware of positives rather than letting myself focus only on the negatives. I've been more aware of superb pieces of work, the qualities that my colleagues have around me and lessons in which things have clicked. I've allowed myself to enjoy those moments a little bit more. I definitely didn't think that becoming a father would have actually improved my work-life balance. And while I would say this year definitely hasn't been an easy learning curve, it absolutely has improved that. So is there any advice in here? Uh, I think perhaps too. Finding something that changes our focus away from teaching is absolutely essential. As is allowing ourselves to notice all the wonderful qualities that teaching has as a career. Hi Craig, I'm Gemma Sherwood. I'm head of maths at a secondary school in Worcestershire and on Twitter I'm Gemmaths. This year I've come to realise more than ever before that it's really important that everybody in the maths team contributes to the curriculum. Now I don't mean by that that everybody goes away and designs a section of the scheme of work separately. 
what I mean is that it's really important that we spend time in our teams honing our school's way of teaching maths. Not only does it improve consistency for the pupils, but it encourages all staff to see the bigger picture outside of their rooms. It's very easy for us all to become siloed, stuck in our little rooms, teaching what we teach and not really talking to anybody else about what's going on. But when we spend our meeting time uh, talking about the maths instead of the admin and all the nonsense, talking about how we're going to teach, talking about why we teach things that way, talking about why one way might be superior to another way for certain groups of pupils, and sharing our ideas and sharing our strategies, then we improve the experience for all our pupils. And on top of that, we improve the experience for our teachers because we're not all reinventing the wheel on our own. We're sharing what's going on and we're reducing our workload as a result. Hi, I'm Jess Pryor. I'm a maths teacher and second in department and on Twitter I'm 49cubed. Something I've learned or been thinking about a lot this year is the role that stories have to play within my teaching. Um, I think for most of my career I've not really thought about mathematical stories within my lessons. They're not something I would have particularly used with my students and that's something I've changed to some extent over the last year so for example when I'm teaching metric measurements now I always start with looking at what they are where they come from why do we use the number 100 who who chose that what do we mean by a meter is that always what we've meant by a meter and so on and then all of a sudden that's significantly more interesting than just telling them how we need to convert between different metric measures Another thing I did this year when I was looking at some work on algebraic proof with my year 11s, we went about proof in much the same way I'd always done. But before that, I spoke to them about Andrew Wiles and the, his proof of Fermat's last theorem. And it just, it changed the feel of that lesson away from how it very much could have been. And I think it's really easy, with, or I found it really easy within my lessons to just focus completely on the content of what they need to know for the exam and never allow them to experience those moments of wonder um, that make the whole subject the fascinating thing that it is and so that's something I want to keep doing. I think one of the things that makes it difficult is that I don't always know all the stories about maths, I don't know everything there is to know um, and so I've been reading more and trying to learn more with the hope that I can share those things share those things with my students and hopefully just make them a bit more interested than they otherwise would have been. Thanks. Hi, my name's Jo Morgan. I'm a maths teacher and on Twitter I'm MathsGem. Um, this year I've been really lucky. I, I've, I've had the opportunity to observe maths teachers in a number of different schools. And I've seen teachers from trainees through to experienced teachers teaching year seven through to sixth form. And it's been real, really eye-opening for me. I've learned a lot. Um, I've seen problems with the system. So things, that are, things in the system that are stopping maths teachers from being able to deliver good lessons. And I've also seen some amazing practice that has um, been quite inspirational and really given me ideas for my teaching next year. Um, 
If you get the chance to visit another school and observe some lessons, then take it because it's fascinating. It really is great CPD for any teacher to go and spend some time in a school that's very different to their own. Um, it's also worth spending time watching your own colleagues teach. And that's something quite informal that can be just kind of 20 minutes dropping in to see how they explain a particular topic or just uh, 20 minutes dropping in to go around and chat to some students who are working. Because it's very hard when we're teaching a lesson to really go and chat to each student and talk to them about their misconceptions and ask them questions. Because if you're the teacher in the room, then you're trying to deal with the behaviour and you're trying to get everyone on task and you're trying to deal with all sorts of things. And that really restricts the amount of time you have to speak to students. So if you're a visitor in the room, a visiting maths teacher who's kind of circulating around while the students are working, then you get to have those really rich conversations and they're really insightful and you really get to know what the misconceptions are and you get to hear all these this wonderful thinking from students. And it's, and it's something you get to do a lot more when you're not the adult in charge of the room. So I can't recommend it enough. Um, I've seen all sorts of things that have kind of worried me in terms of the system, the lack of planning time, the amount of teachers who are forced to deliver PowerPoints that they've not looked at themselves because they just haven't had time to plan that lesson. Um, this is really worrying. I've seen a surprising amount of interview lessons where teachers are just downloading a PowerPoint from TES and delivering it. You know, this has become something that's quite... Um, a, a big a big problem in this country, this kind of download and teach without the teacher actually doing any thinking themselves about the lesson. And it's very clear, it's very obvious when you're observing a lesson and the teacher hasn't looked at the slides in advance. And quite often, in fact, you see mathematical errors in the slides that the teacher doesn't pick up on. So that's something that's been worrying. There's been other things that have been, um, that have worried me in terms of behaviour in schools and culture and culture in society and the effect that has on maths lessons and how I've seen some kids this year who haven't picked up a pen for an entire lesson or sometimes for, for weeks. Um, I've, I also see a lot of, of rushing, so a sort of race to get through a scheme of work and no chance to go into any depth because of the breadth of topics in our curriculum. So there's all sorts of things that I've seen where, where I've thought, well, actually, there's, there's quite serious kind of high level problems in this country that are getting in the way of really high quality maths education. But on the other side, I've seen so many wonderful things. I've spoken to kids with great ideas and great ways of explaining things themselves and really interesting approaches. I've seen beautiful teacher explanations um, and I've seen departments who collaborate really well and who plan lessons together and have got loads of good ideas. So as there's loads of great stuff going on. There's loads of things that, that are standing in the way of every student in this country getting a high quality maths education. Um, and, and, the, and, and what we have to do is try and figure out a way of dealing with those things and, and really celebrating all the wonderful things that are happening. But like I say, I've learned so much this year and I can't recommend it enough that if you get any opportunity, even if it's just a one off or maybe if it's just an occasional thing where you get the chance to go to another school or perhaps to just see another maths teacher in your department, you will learn a lot from observing others. You will see things that you think that didn't work well or you'll see things and you'll think, well, that was amazing. And both those things you can learn from. Hi, my name is Catherine Verbal-Singh and I uh, am the headmistress at Michaela uh, Community School and um, I uh, am on Twitter, uh, Miss 
underscore Snuffy. That's S-N-U-F-F-Y, short for Miss Snuffleupagus, which is the big elephant in the room as such on Sesame Street. Um, So this year I have learned all about smartphones and how dangerous they are. And if you follow me on Twitter, then you will have heard me speaking lots about it. And that's because um, it's been really... uh, mind-blowing for me to understand just how dangerous they are for kids. Um, I didn't realise because, um, you know, uh, before, you know, when I was in teaching before, um, it wasn't, um, smartphones weren't really around. And now, uh, it's only been in the last few years that they've become so popular. And um, the thing about Michaela is that uh, because we have really great behaviour and we have excellent teachers who are doing such a great job and a consistent job in the classroom. Uh, we can really isolate the things that uh, have terrible impact on the children. And um, I have learned uh, just what smartphones do. They monopolize children's time. Uh, so our children will be on the phones for seven hours a, a, a night. That's, you know, in the evenings after school. Um, and that's on average, you know, there are kids who are up in the middle of the night. Uh, this is coming up to their GCSEs. Uh, they are meeting all sorts of undesirables is what I call them on, on the phone, you know, so Snapchat, Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, they're meeting people who are in gangs. They're meeting, uh, older, you know, girls meeting older men, um, really dangerous situations. Uh, They get involved in criminal activity. Uh, They make uh, YouTube, um, uh, well, videos where they are insulting uh, gang members. And, you know, one one kid around around the corner from us at another school, he did that and uh, a South London gang came up and uh, killed him. So um, I'm regularly trying to tell parents just how dangerous uh, smartphones are and that they are literally putting their children in danger. Um, You know, they don't realize that once upon a time you put the porn magazines uh, behind uh, the top shelf. Uh, Nowadays we give them smartphones and um, that just gives them direct access to video porn, not just magazine porn. Um, it, girls are on Snapchat, etc. And the only understanding of, of, of kind of being a female is to put on lipstick and pout and stick their bottoms out and, 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 and just be relatively, you know, pretty revolting, really, <laughs> that that's the world that they live in. And the swearing and the bullying that takes place online, you know, it's something we don't really have uh, bullying in in school because, you know, the the behavior is just so great. But what we can't do is control it on social media. And what I always say to parents is that uh, Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs, they and all of the big tech CEOs in California don't give their children phones until they're 16. Uh, When uh, Steve Jobs was asked about the iPad in 2010 and what his children thought of it, he said, well, obviously, my children don't have an iPad. Uh, the guys in Silicon Valley, they're all uh, m- mad competition to get them get their children into a school that bans all tech. Um, and the point is, that these guys are billionaires and driving around, riding around in, a, in private jets. And um, they do so off our ignorance because it's because we are buying smartphones and, and Snapchat and Instagram and WhatsApp and so on. Are, all of this the, is, is, being, is, is only made possible because we are, 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 are enabling it. Um, and, and these guys protect their own children while uh, harming the children who we teach, uh, children in the inner city 
who 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 whose lives we're trying to to give a chance to and it, and it makes me really really angry because um because because it's a new technology we don't uh warn people you know on cigarette packets they they warn and we should be warning parents about the dangers for their children uh because they don't know and it's not their fault um and we need to have a huge campaign out there that gives loads of information to parents so they can make the right decisions for their children these addiction teams that work for these uh, different apps uh that get children addicted i don't know how they sleep at night so anyway i'm on this big campaign to try and tell everybody about it um and i hope schools are doing their best to to try and get this under control because um our kids our kids need us. They need us to help them uh, navigate their way through this this, this very difficult thing. Uh, so that's what I've learned. And um, I'm learning all the time on how to uh, get better at, um, at persuading parents to keep their children away from smartphones. All right. Thank you. Hello, my name is Chris Bolton. I'm Director of Education at Uplearn, and on Twitter, I am Chris underscore Bolton. This year, I've learned something from United Learning's curriculum advisor, Naveen Rizvi, that I call revealing the secrets. There's a ton of secret numbers scattered throughout mathematics that cause untold problems for pupils. For example, when we write the letter X, we know that what we're really writing is 1x to the power of 1 over 1. We know that, but our pupils tend to forget about all those secret ones and it causes problems. Here's an example. When we first ask pupils to calculate gradients, we tend to give them integer gradients to start with. If they find that the gradient is 3, that integer is hiding secret information because another way of writing it is 3 over 1. That tells you that every time the line extends three units to the right, it also extends one unit up. But because the 1 is kept secret when we write down 3 as an integer, pupils don't see that, so they're missing something that helps give meaning to the concept of gradient. So we need to reveal the secrets. In this case, we do it by asking them to find the gradient of a line whose gradient is something like 3 over 2 or 3 over 7. That way, they can see that the top number counts how far the line extends to the right and the bottom number counts how far the line extends up. Hello, my name's Luke uh, and I'm the Head of Maths at a school in Geneva and on Twitter I'm LukePierce85. Uh, this year I've learned that moving to a new country is a really great idea. Um, I think the main reason is, well for me I suppose I've got to start with the, the outdoors and the mountains, that's why I moved to, to the Alps um, and you know, just having that so close to you is something that is harder to achieve in, in the UK. Um, but also it open your, opens your eyes to 
uh, kind of you know some of the differences between different cultures and kind of makes you realizes sort of strengths and weaknesses of different countries that you never thought of before um i mean it's sort of stereotypical to say that the english weather is terrible i actually used to defend the english weather but um since living abroad for a winter i now feel like i would really struggle to go back uh, in particular you know having the snow having ski resorts just uh, half an hour away turns the winter from a sort of fairly depressing time i used to find it in the uk to actually something that i look forward to um another interesting thing about france is the the clubs uh, are sort of fairly different yeah you know, quite differently organized to, to that in the uk they're much more sort of i suppose socialist in style um they're run by the members generally um rather than being private institutions um so there's the alpine club and a climbing club that i'm part of yeah kind of yeah very sort of friendly setup um on the kind of negative side you do feel I, i do feel like france feels a bit less entrepreneurial than the uk there's fewer kind of startups little businesses doing you know creating things that people might want uh, and there's definitely a bit more bureaucracy although i wonder if people moving to england feel the same thing about that uh, and then a, another big thing i miss is the uh, the pubs um but you know you can't have everything um but overall uh, i feel like life uh, life in the mountains is pretty great um so you know if you're interested well as a as a teacher and particularly as a maths teacher um you're uniquely well placed to apply for jobs abroad there is a you know a huge network of international schools uh, and so you can look into moving wherever you'd like really um in particular i'm going to make a shameless plug for the fact that my department will be growing uh, next year and so keep looking around january time and it'd be great if you could uh, apply to come and join me hello my name's mary myatt and i think and write and talk about education uh my twitter handle is @marymyatt um so three things i'd like to uh share that have uh, made a big impact on my thinking this year um so the first is uh, a couple of pieces of research that have um come up quite recently actually and the first is dan willingham's um uh tweet about a a randomized control trial of um some interleaved versus uh blocked practice in maths uh for four months in a year 7 equivalent class in the states and what they found was um that one month later on unannounced tests um of the students that um there was 61% um um success as opposed to 38% success um uh on the two the interleaving versus the block practice now what is important here is that teachers didn't do any more work they just organized how they taught uh so that it was interleaved versus blocked um 
There's also um, a, a good report from the lead author, Doug Roa, um, on interleaving, which I found really helpful. Um, if you wanted to find more on those, um, go to Dan Willingham's at DT Willingham, his Twitter feed, and they're there on May the 17th this year. Um, the second um, really interesting piece of research um, which was published earlier this year, is from um, the UK Literacy Association. And this found that um, the impact of just reading at a faster pace, um, the impact that that had for the outcomes for um, uh, poorer readers uh, was phenomenal. So um, I think the course was um, about... 12 weeks and um, what happened was that there were two whole challenging novels read at a faster pace than usual in the 12 weeks and the students there were about um, between about 12 and 13 so year eight. Um, now what they found was that students in the both groups made eight and a half months mean progress on their standardized tests of reading comprehension but the poorer readers made 16 months progress. So we've got something really interesting going on there that I think that um, we need to be taking account of these uh, really, really important. Because um, it's no extra work, it's just that thinking about things differently. Um, second strand I'd just like to share is um, the work that's going on um, with people like um, Jeremy Hannay and Chris Moyes, both of whom are on Twitter, um, who are just getting at um the the kinds of leadership um conditions that need to be in place to get the best out of teachers so some really deep stuff on coaching on growing communities of um really authentic researching professionals um making huge difference to how people feel about their work and you know impact a greater impact on children now this is in contrast to the default setting um across parts of the sector which is about holding people to account through um performance target grades and you know pseudo data and all this sort of stuff which you know it holds people back what we want to shift the narrative completely so i i recommend people uh take a look at their work uh jeremy's twitter feed and his articles ditto chris moise's blogs and chris has got a, a pinned tweet on his four main coaching questions just really helpful um urge everyone to look at those and then the final um thing i just want to share is uh, it's had a big impact on 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 uh, my thinking i started uh, reading it about a year ago but I still go back to it and it's a book um, called Rest and the subtitle is Why You Get More Done When You Work Less and it's by um, um, a professor in the States, um, Alex Pang and it's backed up with all the research that says you know it's not a luxury it is actually essential. So colleagues I hope that's helpful. Have a great summer. Hi Craig, this is Melanie Muldowney. Um, I'm Mel on Twitter. My Twitter handle is uh, just underscore maths. I've got two for the price of one today. So there's me and uh, 
Seeger, people will know him. I should introduce him properly, Christian Seeger. So, um, Seeger's fine. Seeger's fine, you sure? Fine. Not Seeger. Definitely not Seeger. Yeah? Um, Seeger. Cool. Um, so, my slice of advice this year, or the one thing I've learnt this year, um, is that it's, it's really challenging moving to a special measures school. But it's also one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done, especially being part of the journey going from special measures to requires improvement and hopefully good next time. But obviously, Seager. And then outstanding, obviously. But obviously, Seager, you'll know more about that. Yeah, looking forward to joining the team. So in September, two-thirds of Just Maths back together again. I know, it's a bit, it'd be a bit strange, wouldn't it? Very strange. I'm not um, sure I'm up for it. No, I am. I think we are. I think I yeah. can't wait, yeah. Yeah, exciting. So, your slice of advice. Yeah, my uh, my advice, and I suppose what I've learnt this year, is one, I'm too old to apply for Love Island. But uh, secondly, is that <laughs> I always assume students, and particularly Year 11 here and Intervention Kids and the 345 borderline, that they don't do anything at home at all. But some do. Um, in fact, quite a lot do. And it's a matter of directing them the right way and giving them the support in order so they do do it and they want to do it. So things like the monthly maths calendars that come out and what Mal tweets and puts out there. And the uh, the final countdown, it's a matter of they will do, providing we're directing them. Yeah. And, uh, I've learned that even more so this year. Yeah, I think parents appreciate it as well, don't they? Absolutely. Cause Being uh, directed on what to do. It's, yeah. it's, it's very easy to give a revision guide and say, right, there you go. But if they've got a bit of guidance on what areas that you particularly want to, um, and that's where I think the the crossover material on the on the on the countdown and the monthly math calendar is fantastic. I think you're right, and I think parents appreciate it because I think sometimes we absolve ourselves of responsibilities at parents' evening Absolutely. by going, yeah, have a revision guide, and then we think parents know what to do with it. Some parents are clueless, so we've got to direct them, and and they will do it. I think if they're held, given their hand to hold. Hundred percent. Cool. Well, yeah. thanks for that. Right, I hope that's all right, Craig. See Hope's you later. So, yeah. See you in September. Now. All right, ta-ra. Hello, my name is Michael Kershan. I am a math teacher from New York City. I teach at a private school here where I teach third graders, fourth graders, but uh, also older students who study algebra and geometry. And on Twitter, I am M. Pershan. Uh, and this year I have learned some math. Um, I think we all have years or times, I guess, in our professional careers where, where we're kind of very actively reinventing what we do in the classroom. And other times when I, I guess we're more stable. This was a pretty stable year for me. Uh, just in terms, it felt like a year of reaping the benefits of changes I'd made last year, really towards the, the middle or end of last year. Uh, and so I found myself not really attracted to reading a lot of research about teaching this year. I didn't really find myself attracted to reading a lot about education this year. I, I really found myself excited to study mathematics. Uh, in the fall, I, I studied something called piatic arithmetic, I mean, I, I scratched the surface. I barely scratched the surface, but I, I you know, there's a couple definitions that I understood. There were some theorems that I that I that I felt like I understood much better. In the spring, I got really excited by um, some probability ideas. I ended up reading a lot of, of about about finance and markets, 
which is connected to probability distributions, things like the, I think it's, I don't even know how to pronounce this. I think it's the Levy distribution. Um, and there's a beautiful website if you want to explore called Complexity Explorables, which is a great, I don't know, time suck. It's it, beautiful stuff there. And I ended up diving deeper into there. I learned about how we write computer programs that sample on the basis of probability density functions. I read early papers of Mandelbrot. It was just great. I read a lot of math. It was wonderful. And I don't know if it had any tangible benefits for my students. I, I, I have no reason to think that it really would have, but I, I do recommend it. And I guess for a couple reasons, first of all, sometimes this job can feel, you know, very strange and very niche uh, in the sense that like we put all this effort in sometimes for these skills that, and especially as the kids get older, um, sometimes feel like somewhat detached from any tangible benefits in their futures, right? Like, like, you know, there's, there's, there's a kid who's about to graduate secondary school and, and we're struggling so much for them to be able to solve a quadratic. And, and it can sometimes feel, you know, why, why are we doing this? What is this endeavor? Is this what mathematics is? And, and it's not right. And it's not. And, and I, I felt myself thinking about that and getting excited about the discipline again, about how it's, it's vibrant and beautiful and, and it's it's built on understanding, and it it it, it can, it's concerned with human concerns. So I, that was one beautiful thing about studying mathematics this year. And uh, I'm trying very hard not to say just math because it's an American thing. I don't want to sound American. And uh, I guess the other thing, it's good to be in the position of the student of mathematics. It it, it, it I felt like it gave me a chance to 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 put teaching perspectives I have into practice as as an individual. I was much more happy to study examples. I, I, I didn't allow myself to linger on, uh, uh, force myself really to linger on with problems extensively. If I was struggling, if it felt like I should walk away from something, I walked away. I, I, I paid attention to the things that were exciting to me. So that was nice. That was nice also. And and it just, it, it's good, I think, to, 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 to remember what it's like a little bit to be lost in a new mathematical area, that it's good to stay in touch with that feeling. Um, and I, I also think that there was, there were times this year when I was more likely to, to, to just share interesting mathematical ideas with students to show them a little bit of, of, you know, beyond their mathematical horizon, because I was, you know, thinking about it and familiar with it and eager to share it and excited by it. So, so that's what I'd recommend. My advice, I guess, is if you have time and if you're not in a period where you feel like you really need to reinvent what you're doing, studying some mathematics or studying whatever your subject love is, is, um, is I just, uh, it's a good thing. It's a good way to spend some time. Uh, that's it. Hello, my name is Naveen Rizvi and I'm Mathematics Curriculum Advisor at United Learning and on Twitter I'm at Naveen F. Rizvi. This year I've learned about covertization, which is one element of direct instruction discussed in Engelman and Carnine's Theory of Instruction. Covertization is a strategy to enable children to be taught more in less time and more specifically to describe as the process of replacing the highly overtized routine with less structured routines. So to teach in a manner which is time efficient, we must provide learners with procedures for developing and sequencing cognitive routine. But what is a cognitive routine? 
A cognitive routine is an action taught to a learner to help them complete complex cognitive problems. So, for example, I'm going to demonstrate two cognitive routines that I would want children to do if they have two fractions. Let's say on the left they have 7 over 11 and the next fraction they have a 3 over 11. And I want them to correctly place um, either a more than sign or a less than sign between the two. So I'm going to now go into teacher mode and this is what I say to the kids. There are two fractions below. They have the same bottom number of 11. They have different top numbers. Place your finger on the bigger top number and the child would put their finger on the number 7. I would say, well done, you have touched the fraction with the top number of 7. Draw a circle around this fraction and then the child would draw a, a circle around 7 over 11. So these are two cognitive routines that haven't achieved the goal yet of placing the correct symbol between the two fractions to identify which one's greater. But this, these two cognitive routines are routines that I would eventually want children to internalise and do by themselves independently. Um, so the goal is to go from this very structured form of instruction to something as unstructured as this. For example, place correct symbol to show which fraction is greater. And then the child does all the internalised steps, the two that I've mentioned, where they place the correct symbol. So, cognitive routines can also be understood as algorithms which help to learners to learn the intended concept factor process being communicated by the teacher, or the learner will either respond by learning the intended concept or failing to do so. So I've shown one I've shown two cognitive routines, but a sequence of those cognitive routines then becomes a piece of instruction. And once learners have practiced several similar fraction problems by applying the set of cognitive routines, then those routines become internalised. And that repetitive application of cognitive routines allows learners to develop generalisations and define mathematical patterns and eventually become active seekers of information. So given the importance of teaching learners cognitive routines, we will now look at an example of covertization, which you've already seen before in this, in this um, clip. So the instruction that's given by a teacher to a learner begins as highly prompted and guided so that the learner can give the desired response. And then the highly prompted structure is faded out to become um, less verbally prompted. So Engman believes that applying communication achieves a greater probability of success for all learners across the body spectrum because when learners are unsuccessful, the fault usually lies with the instruction rather than the learner. And covertization invites teachers to look at the wording of the instruction because consider all the points where a learner might be misled to an incorrect response or where a learner might develop a misunderstanding of the mathematical concept being communicated. So according to the strategy of covertization, if the instructional sequence is well designed, then one can assure the highest percentage of children in the classroom are successful on the first teaching attempt. This is possible because the programme att attempts to anticipate and preempt avoiding misteaching and that is my obsession for the next couple of weeks and has been something I've been working on for the last year or so and I hope you enjoy if you want to know more um, I've blogged about it um, on my blog concept of the good and also I've got a few more things coming out soon and equally if you want to read chapter 21 in Engelman and Karnai's Day of Instruction it is all there
Hello, my name is Oliver Caviglioli and I'm an information designer. I used to be a special school head teacher. Um, and on Twitter, I'm known as at OliCav. This year, I've learned that moving really helps learning. I'm old enough to remember the words multisensory learning, and I guess that's been laughed at now. But this year, John Sweller and his colleagues issued a free paper called Cognitive Architecture and Instructional Design 20 Years Later. And in it, they have a full some acknowledgement of the of what they call embodied cognition, which entails many things, but gesturing, drawing, and tracing. So drawing in another paper by Myra Fernandez found to be the strongest mnemonic she found testing it. And believe it or not, even tracing is really effective. There's a there's a study by Hu and and colleagues who found that those students who traced worked examples in geometry while explaining to a peer performed significantly better than those colleagues who simply looked at the uh, and explained the worked example and didn't do any tracing with their index finger. Um, so they explained it by being a question of enriching the encoding process. And in doing that, and offload, they call that offloading, cognitive offloading, because there's no extra load, there's no cognitive load as a burden from that, which is strange because generally for learners, cognitive science gives just bad news. You have to think hard, you have to do retrieval practice, you have to struggle, you know, it's all kind of bad news. So you can no longer delude yourself, oh, I just like rereading, I just like highlighting. Um, it gives you the bad news in a sense. But this is just a freebie. We've got very limited cognitive load and to have our natural responses of gesturing and tracing and drawing helps the enriching process. And that's been really quite a revelation. Try it out. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ollie Lovell. I'm a teacher and head of senior mathematics in Melbourne, Australia, and I also run the Education Research Reading Room, or ERRR, podcast. This year, I've learned three things that I'm going to mention today. The first is about the power of a new approach to departmental meetings. Following my podcast discussion with Dylan William, we've started to dedicate one meeting per month to Dylan's Embedding a Formative Assessment Professional Development Pack. The end of each of these meetings is spent planning, with a buddy, a formative assessment strategy that we're going to try in the next month, and when we're going to observe each other, trying these strategies out. The start of the following meeting is spent discussing how these strategies went, what we learned from them, and how we can adapt them for future. The middle of the meeting is spent on a short reading or video, focusing on a new formative assessment strategy. What's amazed me about this approach is how these discussions, coupled with short peer observations, has added a whole new energy to these meetings that is spilling out into our day-to-day -day conversations, and meaning that teachers are discussing teaching and learning much more than they were before. I can't recommend this PD approach highly enough. The second thing I've learned is about a new approach to worked examples. This year I'm teaching a high-level math subject at Year 12 that I haven't taught before. 
In the first part of the year, I was having real troubles modeling worked examples because I was finding that the cognitive load of doing the mathematics on the board wasn't leaving much bandwidth for me to effectively teach, ask questions, strategically direct students' attention, and so on. That struggle persisted until I came across the revelation that was Craig's discussion with Michael Pershing on none other than this podcast. Michael's approach to giving students a fully worked solution, then directing their attention, remember, students remember what they attend to, through the use of prompts, has meant that my students are understanding better as I'm able to more effectively plan to highlight key elements of the maths by asking questions that help students to hone in on key features. So questions like, which rule did this student use to differentiate? Or, why was this student able to take the negative 3 outside of the integration sign can help me draw students' attention to the key features of a worked example. Further, I'm also able to better address any misconceptions that I managed to anticipate by including incorrect worked examples in the same way and using prompts to stimulate discussion about errors that students are likely to make. This new approach has been an absolute godsend for me. Finally, I've come to the realisation that my pre-existing view of project-based learning was far too simplistic. I'd previously seen project-based learning as an open-ended approach to teaching in which a focus on so-called 21st century skills left content as the casualty. However, I recently happened upon the incredible work of Professor Janet Kolodner. Janet's work has its basis in the idea of case-based reasoning, a field of research that has emerged from exploring the question of how machines, artificial intelligence, learn from examples. From there, over a period of more than 10 years and with countless colleagues from multiple fields, Janet has developed a set of project-based inquiry science resources that expertly bring together inquiry, explicit instruction, group work, oracy, and a whole host of other instructional approaches that I've been trying to integrate into my own teaching for quite some time now. A few days ago, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Professor Kolodna about her work for over two and a half hours and was absolutely blown away by the level of thought and consideration that can go into designing a project that drives to the heart of content and supports students to effectively build those key knowledge schemas that we're trying to instill. If you're interested in hearing more about Janet's work, that Education Research Reading Room podcast episode will be out on September 1st. On Twitter, I am Ollie, that's O-L-L-I-E underscore Lovell, L-O-V-E-L-L, and I'll share some links to the podcasts that I've mentioned when this Slice of Advice episode goes live. Thanks for your time and listening today, and enjoy the rest of this fantastic episode. Hello, my name is Paul Rowlandson. I'm a lead teacher at Trinity Academy Halifax, and my Twitter handle is at Mr. Underscore Rowlandson. Uh, this year, I've been thinking a lot about topics that appear to be quite different to students on the surface, but are somewhat linked together, and playing about with ways to try and make the connections between those topics clearer for students to see. And while there are plenty of ways of doing this, I like to share one neat little way that I've tried a few times this year and it seems to work quite well on those occasions. And that is to take two or more topics that we're trying to link together, display a question for each of those topics on the board side by side and make the numbers in each of those questions exactly the same. For example, if students have previously learned how to simplify ratios and they are now learning how to factorize expressions into a single bracket, or if the topics were the other way around, depending on the scheme of work. 
then we could display the following two questions on the board. Simplify the ratio 18 to 24 and factorize the expression 18a plus 24b. So both questions have 18 and 24. While students are answering the second question, they'll hopefully get a sense of deja vu from the first question because they'll probably find themselves using a very similar method, doing the same calculations and seeing the same numbers pop up at the same time. So once students have done that and we've written the working on the board, we can then ask the class to, to discuss the similarities and differences between them. How are the two questions and workings different? How are they very similar? But then more importantly, then discuss the whys for those answers as well. So, for example, why do we find ourselves doing a very similar method in each question by taking out a highest common factor? But also discuss why are they different? So why, for example, when you are factorizing, you put the highest common factor in front of a bracket, while when we are simplifying the ratio, the highest common factor seems to disappear. So that's one example. Another example of the same idea could be to uh, make a link between expanding a pair of brackets and multiplying a two-digit number by a two-digit number. Uh, in that case, the example could be 23 times 45, 2, 3, 4, 5, and expand 2x plus 3 times 4x plus 5. Again, we've got the same numbers, 2, 3, 4, and 5. If they've used a grid method before for multiplication, then the grid method for expanding brackets will look very similar. If they only know the column method for multiplication, then I don't see why they couldn't use a similar method for expanding brackets. I'm, I've never really seen expanding brackets set out in a column before, but I can't see, I can't think why it wouldn't work if you put 2x plus 3 above 4x plus 5. And then remember to put a placeholder in the second line of the answer working so the like terms line up. But that might be a bit weird and it there's probably a very good reason why we don't do that uh, very often, but it's a possibility. Anyway, the um, the key thing is that if you use 23 and 45 and 2x plus 3 and 4x plus 5, things look very, very similar. But also we can ask the bonus question, what value of x could make these two questions exactly the same? In summary, by using questions from different topics, but making the numbers exactly the same, it can possibly shine a light on how similar those topics are. Hope you found it useful. Thank you very much. Bye. I'm Richard Tuck at TikTok Maths on Twitter and TikTokMaths.co.uk on the web. I'm a math teacher teaching internationally. The biggest thing I've learned this year is not just to expect children to infer things by some sort of osmosis without explicitly drawing attention to it. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I've always thought the way I taught area circumference of a circle wasn't bad at all. I'd do a lesson on circumference with different examples, rearranging the formula, all that jazz. I check the inner quotes learning, then I do a lesson on an area of a circle. I'd rearrange the formula, do lots of examples, make me find R, we do some whiteboard work and some checking, and we'd all leave the lesson smiling and happy and safe in the knowledge that we could find the area of a circle, just like we'd left the previous lesson after we could find the circumference of one. And when the end of unit test came around, half the class would inevitably completely fail the circle questions. They'd find the circumference for area questions, they'd find the area for circumference questions, and some students would go completely mad and just make up their own formula. I think there's a few reasons for this. Obviously, more variation in questioning is valuable. 
putting questions where they have to use a suitable formula into exercises is much better. Mixing up circumference and area questions so they have to pick which skill to use. But greater than this, I hadn't really told them how to spot the difference between an area formula or a length formula. Or if I had told them, it was tossed off a side, not highlighted, not drawn attention to. This year, I've been sure to really highlight the difference between a length formula and an area one, and also a volume one. How can we spot the features of both? What's a variable? What's a constant? If I give you a formula you've never seen before, could you tell if it was an area, volume, or length formula? Drawing attention to and highlighting small things like this, rather than expecting students to internalise them themselves without much provoking, has made my teaching thorough and exacting in a way it hasn't always been, it led to much more retained knowledge. So to summarise, this year I've learned to highlight the small stuff and to not expect students to understand what's been left unsaid. Hello, my name is Rob Eastaway. I write books about maths, I give maths workshops for teachers, and I run Maths Inspiration, which is a national programme of theatre-based lecture shows for teenagers. On Twitter, I am at Rob Eastaway. This year, I've been thinking a lot about the importance of humour in maths, and the reason for this is that I think that humour is an essential part of creativity. About 50 years ago, Arthur Kersler wrote a book called The Act of Creation, and in that book he said that creativity manifests itself in three ways. Art, discovery and humour. Somebody else reduced this to three shorter words. Creativity is ah, aha and ha-ha. I love those three words because I think they're a quick way to spot that creativity is happening, whether that's in everyday life or in maths lessons. If a lesson has included no moments of ah, aha or ha-ha, then whatever else it's achieved, I would suggest it has not involved any creativity. My eldest daughter has just taken her GCSEs, so this year I've taken a closer interest than normal in the maths that teenagers are expected to do in preparation for their exams. What has struck me is how little humour there is in maths questions. In fact, a teacher recently confided to me that she'd once been a GCSE exam setter and she'd found that uh, any humour that she put into questions in the form of puns or amusing product names tended to get removed. The reason for this is apparently that exams should avoid arousing emotional reactions in students. And of course, it wouldn't be right for some students to burst out laughing during an exam or to start crying because of a poignant story linked to simultaneous equations though presumably the emotional reaction of oh my god this question is so unrealistic it makes me angry is deemed acceptable. Anyway, I can understand that humour in exam questions could be misconstrued. Exams are not there to entertain. Unfortunately, there are consequences if, like my daughter, the two years building up to GCSE are spent almost entirely practising on old GCSE exam questions. It means there is a danger of there being no humour in any of the lessons. Maths becomes a dry series of tasks with little sense of a twinkle in the eye of the examiner that says, I know this question has a really contrived storyline, but have a go anyway. I asked my daughter if she'd ever laughed during a maths lesson in year 10 or year 11. Her reply, no, not once. For our maths inspiration shows, we have a pool of about 20 maths presenters. Almost all of them have had the benefit of some coaching from Chris Head, who is a stand-up comedy coach. That's not, not because we all want to become stand-up comedians. 
is because comedians know how to deliver a message in such a way that it can create surprise, intrigue and, of course, laughter. It's amazing how content that seems dull can be livened up by little changes to the storyline or to the order in which the information is revealed. I don't want to suggest that maths lessons should be a laugh a minute, and of course, maths doesn't need jokes to be very rewarding. But I do think that for students who don't love algebra or geometry or statistics, a touch of humour can sweeten the pill and send a message of empathy that, yes, we know you might be finding this hard, but we're human too. Hello, my name is Stuart Welsh. I am a former head of maths and research lead for a school in Glasgow in Scotland. I am currently teaching maths at an international school in Marbella in Spain. On Twitter, I am at maths180. I've been teaching maths for over a decade and for me, many whiteboards are probably my number one essential teaching resource. Using many whiteboards allows me to receive immediate whole class feedback. This allows me to teach responsibly and to make in-the-moment decisions about where to go next. I find students are happier to scribble down answers they are not confident with on a mini whiteboard rather than in a jotter. Probably something to do with the impermanence of the erasable pen. Here are my tips for getting the most out of using mini whiteboards. Firstly, the board should be used frequently enough so that the novelty factor wears off. Try to establish a routine when using the boards. For example, I'll say things like, don't show me yet. Keep your answer close to your chest. Okay, three, two, one, show me your answers. A simultaneous whole class reveal is useful as you can sometimes get a measure of students' confidence by the way they either thrust their board in the air or by the way their board slowly and timidly peeks up from behind their desk. Many whiteboards are also great for working in small groups. Think pair share works well, as does swapping boards and adding to or improving on others' answers. There is so much that can be done with many whiteboards. If the whole class is getting my questions correct, then I know I don't need to spend much more time on this and I'll move on to something more challenging or something new. If half the class is correct, then I'll have a conversation with the class to tease out where the misconceptions lie and, importantly, to listen to how those who answered correctly managed it. If only one or two students get the answers wrong, then I might decide to speak to them individually at a later point. If everyone gets it wrong, then there's probably some reteaching required. Many whiteboards offer a brilliant way to get immediate, comprehensive feedback from all students. I try to restrict my questions to just those requiring short responses. True, false is good. Multiple choice works well. Always, sometimes, never true is also good. I try to avoid long response questions, say, more than four lines of working, as this can lead to downtime for students who finish quickly. Tired of replacing dried up or damaged pens? Maybe you could try to make the pens a compulsory bit of school kit. One snag with using mini whiteboards is the time taken to distribute them and collect them in at the end. Sir, I don't have a pen. Sir, I don't have a duster, etc. You can get students to hand them out and collect them in at the end, but this again introduces downtime and, heaven forbid, chatting time. To solve this, get yourself a class set of heavy duty, top opening plastic wallets that are a little bigger than your mini whiteboards. Use some sticky backed Velcro, not the cheap stuff, to attach the plastic wallet to the front or the sides of each desk. Put all the mini whiteboard kit into the wallets. Now you can move to and from using mini whiteboards in literally seconds. Check out the pinned tweet 
on my Twitter for photos. Have fun. Hello, my name's Tim Roach, at Mr T Roach on Twitter, and I teach at Grenica's Primary Academy in Oldham. This year I've learned just how effective sweating the small stuff is for improving children's writing, something that should be axiomatic, but in English the tendency can be to jump to writing longer pieces before children are ready. 18 months ago I read The Writing Revolution by Judith Hockman and Natalie Wexler. Many people will already be familiar with one of its most popular techniques called Because But So. I immediately knew that it was something I could make work at my school because one of its six core principles was to teach grammar in the context of real children's writing rather than as a discreet pursuit just to pass a grammar or punctuation test. I started trialling its techniques in my year five and year six classes before asking the rest of the school to focus much more on teaching good sentence writing and practising a small number of techniques. The results across the school are that children of all ages are writing in better, more coherent sentences. There are fewer run-on sentences, those that carry on for half a page punctuated only by and then and then. And the effects aren't just evident in English, but they're visible in written work across the curriculum. Children use because but so sentence starters to explain their reasoning in science and maths. They use note-taking with much more of a purpose and apply it in detail in their writing. They use kernel sentences, expanding a simple sentence into a more detailed and complex one to join the dots between their knowledge of any given subject and make connections in history, geography and RE. Using the writing revolution has given the teachers these extra tools with which to teach writing and enable pupils to express themselves more confidently and coherently, whatever the subject. And because it isn't a scheme of work per se, it can be slotted into any lesson. It's meant that there's been no loss of creativity or writing rigour, and writing is seen as purposeful, both in learning and for its own sake. So, Craig Barton's asked for new ideas from this year. I'm Tom Bennett, and one of my favourite things in behaviour that I've kind of come across or learned this year is the idea that behaviour is like a curriculum, which is to say that a lot of the habits and things we expect children to do in classrooms and schools are, they're not natural, they're not things which we're born with, which means they have to be taught. And if something has to be taught, what's the best way to teach them? And once we start to look at this area of expertise, we start to realise that behaviour needs to be taught in a way which is very, very similar to the way in which we would teach an academic subject or a practical subject. And everything that we've learned over the past 20 or 30 years about how we best learn these types of things can be applied to the area of behaviour. So, for example, how would you normally teach an academic subject? Well, first of all, you would assess the baseline of understanding. Then you would communicate the information or the skills as best you can, maybe using Rosenstein's principles of instructions. You would use direct instruction where appropriate or group work and independent inquiry where less appropriate. And then once you've done that, what would you do then? You would check for common misunderstandings, you would uh, assess for learning, you would correct common misconceptions associated with the learning, you would then get them to do something with the learning, perhaps they could demonstrate the learning, they could do a task which showed they'd learned the learning. You could ask the least 
able students in the class to see what they knew so you were walking towards the most common problems and so on. And then crucially, you would assess them in the learning, you'd ask them to retrieve the learning, use the testing effect, and then you would revisit the learning later on through space learning and so on. Now, all of this we're gradually coming to an awareness of when it comes to academic learning. And I think the point I'm trying to reach for here is that when it comes to behaviour learning, social habits, learning habits in the classroom, we can apply exactly the same, the, the same metrics and the same techniques to behavioural learning. So we test what they're capable of. We teach them the behaviours that we want them to learn. We check their learning. We check their understanding. We check they've understand, understood what the instructions, what the routines are, the norms are for the classroom. We get them to do the thing over and over again until it becomes internalised, until habits form. And once habits form, then it becomes the norm. It becomes the default behaviour for students to, to perform in the classroom and beyond. So I think that when we start to see behaviour as a curriculum, we start to see it as a subject to be taught, rather than simply something to be congratulated or reprimanded when it's achieved or not, is an absolute breakthrough when it comes to the way in which we communicate consciously how we want students to behave and also how we achieve the outcomes where they actually do behave. So that for me is the most important bit of learning I've encountered this year. Thank you. My name is Tom Button and I'm the Maths Technology Specialist for MEI and the Advanced Maths Support Programme and I'm on Twitter as Maths Technology. This year I've learned how few maths teachers are aware of Richard Skent's ideas of relational versus instrumental understanding. If you're not familiar with the ideas then instrumental understanding describes just teaching the how of maths, in other words giving a set of recipes, whereas relational understanding focuses on teaching why mathematical relationships hold. Now, Skemp wrote about this in the 1970s, but I think his ideas about teaching for relational understanding are just as relevant today. The limitations of teaching for instrumental understanding are at the heart of a lot of issues in, in maths teaching, as I see them at the minute. And this is why it surprises me how many maths teachers are, are not aware of these ideas. Now, for me as well, the distinction between instrumental and, and relational understanding has really been key to my development as a, as, a, as a maths educator. And it's also one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the use of technology in the maths classroom, as I think dynamic graphing and dynamic geometry are such powerful tools for helping students understand relationships in maths. If you've not read Skemp's paper on relational versus instrumental understanding, I'd highly recommend you do so. It's available via the ATM website. And even if you are familiar with it, I still think it's worth a reread. I do so every every year and, and I find it a really useful paper to come back to. Also, if you're interested in some more ideas about how relational understanding is linked to technology, then you'll find a bit more detail on my blog, which is at digitalmathematics.blogspot.com. I'm Frankham. I'm a maths education lecturer at the University of Birmingham. On Twitter, I'm at T Frankham. This year, I've learned that whilst there's also a lot of really great new thinking and writing about teaching, 
There's also a lot of lovely older stuff that people might have forgotten about or never come across. One such example arose for me yesterday when I gave a talk about task design at the Mixtertainment conference. Adapting and extending secondary mathematics activities by Pat Perks and Steph Prestige is a great book for just that. Looking at your current tasks you give learners and adapting and extending them a bit in the hope of getting more out of them. Pat and Steph, along with Dave Hewitt, taught me how to teach and they were absolutely expert at coming up with tasks that provide a starting point accessible to all students for whom it's offered and an opportunity to practice some skills as well as provide some challenge. This has completely shaped the way I think about designing tasks and also how I think about what mathematics is. I hope to give a brief flavour of one aspect of adapting and extending that might be interesting if you've never heard of it before or prompt your thinking if you have. The idea is simple and starts with a question and it's one of my favourite questions as a maths teacher alongside what is the same and what's different, is that always true, sometimes true or never true and what question am, am I about to ask you? The question is what if not? The what if not process is relatively simple. Take a familiar problem, list the attributes, take one of the attributes and ask what if not that but something else? Like many things, this is better understood through examples. I'm going to use one of Pat and Steph's that might work on audio. Step one is to take a familiar problem. Complete the sequence 1, 4, 7, 10, 13, blank, blank, dot, dot, dot. Most maths teachers will recognise a question like that. Step two is to list the givens. The first five numbers in the sequence are given. We need to find two more. We need to find the sixth and seventh terms. The first term is one. The second term is four. The third term is seven, so on. Um, the first two numbers are square numbers. The third and the fifth terms are prime. It alternates between odd and even. Each number is a multiple of three, subtract two, and so on. Listing givens gets easier with practice, and it's helpful not to shy away from the more obvious things. I think obvious is the most dangerous word in mathematics. The final step, well sort of, is to take any attribute and ask what if not. I'll give a couple of examples but you can probably think of many more. One would be what if not the first five terms but the first two. So you get continue the sequence one, four, blank, blank, blank. This has the potential for many more solutions, so a need arises to record, to explain and to justify. What if it's not a multiple of 3 subtract 2, but subtract 3 or 4 or 5? Constraining the subsequent tasks in this way can help students attend to the underlying structure. What if not 5 terms, but just the third term is given? Then the task becomes... Find linear sequences where the third term is 7. This task could be used to practice generating sequences, finding term-to-term -term or position-to-term rules, uh, but it also lets students focus on what an arithmetic sequence is. They can also generalise about what all the linear sequences with a third term of 7 look like. There are many more ways a question like this can be adapted and extended 
And of course, it's crucial to have a play about with your new task and see if it's actually any good. But this feels like a much more worthwhile task than trawling the internet for ideas. And it also helps you to work out what your personal criteria is for what makes a good task. Playing with the task is also something you can do with others. I strongly recommend you get, a co- uh, get hold of a copy of Pat and Steph's book, but I hope this has offered a brief flavour of how adapting and extending can be a powerful way of ensuring you can always have nice tasks at your fingertips without creating too much workload for whatever groups you're teaching. Thanks for listening and have a good rest over the summer. Hello, my name is Tom Sherrington and on Twitter I am at Teacherhead. And this year I have learnt that there's real power in the concept that learning is a generative activity. I first came across this idea looking at a book called uh, Marge, or a kind of a whole brain approach to learning by Arthur Shimamura. But over the year, looking at lessons and working with teachers, I found his idea that learning is generative, and the way he talks about the generate-evaluate cycle, just hugely useful. Because where I see lessons to be particularly effective is typically where teachers have created opportunities for students to think about what they know and what they don't know by generating some form of recall or acting on what they already know say in a form of writing or communicating with somebody else or simply answering questions without referring to a resource where they're looking at the answers where lessons are less effective I feel that teachers aren't building in this generative process. So you can get into this situation where teachers are making students complete a task where they don't really need to actually generate a recall of anything you already know. They just transfer information or they focus on just getting it finished and they're not having to think very much. And it's actually an important thing to to think about when you've just explained something. Like You've just explained something to a class How do you know if they've even started to think about it? You need to do a generative activity so the students have to tell you what they think they've understood or to do some questions immediately using the information that you've explained to them without just looking at their notes, which gives them the impression of having processed the information, but they haven't really had to think. So that's that's the main thing I've learned, that it's a really simple and powerful idea. Learning is a generative activity. It also goes hand in hand with various ideas about retrieval practice. So every time you're doing a retrieval practice, you're generating a version of what you think you understand. And in Shimamura's book, he he uses a very simple kind of idea that you first off start thinking about something, then it helps to say it to somebody else. And then it really helps to teach it to someone else. Because if you're actually having to explain what you think you understand to someone else, a kind of teaching moment then you're really working out whether you know it or not and then he also talks about evaluating that so an important part of a generative process is that you then evaluate whether you were correct or successful uh, against some kind of criteria so a generative process needs this evaluative 
aspect of it as well. Was I right? Could it have been better? How good was it? So that you have a feedback loop, which is generated very quickly, to then correct your ideas about what quality might be or to adjust your idea about fluency and so on. Am I ready? Am I fluent enough? Am I getting it correct? Could that have been expressed better? That kind of thing. And then you can do these multiple loops. Let's try again. Let's let's generate another version and see if the second version is even better than the first and so on. Can I do these questions more fluently, um, in more depth, or getting the answer correct with using the correct method? All, all these things are things you can improve constantly. And I just think that if teachers had this language of generative activities and then evaluate, you'd, you, you'd get into a really good rhythm in a lesson um, and it would blend in lots of other ideas, like I said already, the retrieval practice. So there you go, that's my slice of advice. Um, what I've learned this year is that the power of the notion of learning as a generative activity and the sort of generate, evaluate cycle and how useful that would be if teachers had that in mind uh, when they were teaching. Thank you. Hello, my name is Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher and occasional podcaster. What have I learned this year? Well, um, some of you may know that this year I've become a dad for the first time. In fact, on my birthday on the 22nd of January, just in case any of you want to send me a card, um, my wife gave birth to our little baby boy, Isaac, who at the time of recording is coming up to his sixth month birthday, flipping heck. So uh, it's probably no surprise that, that my reflections are related to kind of how my life's changed, but they also have, have work implications as well. And um, the first thing I've learned is that flipping heck, I do not like being away from home. Um, I remember when I first started um, being an advanced skills teacher and I used to I used to visit different schools and that then led to me sometimes being invited to go and visit a school that was far away and required an overnight stay. And I used to love the life on the road. I used to think I was a bit of a, a rock star. Um, but now, God almighty, I, I hate it. I, I absolutely hate it. As soon as I'm away, I, I just want to get back home. So I, I want to be with my wife and I want to be with my, my little baby boy. Um, and that's really hit home for me this year. And, and that leads on to my, my second reflection. And that is that I've got to get better at saying no. And it's it's something I'm, I'm starting to get better at, but I really need to work on this um, next year. Um, I remember a podcast episode by Tim Ferriss, and I can't remember that the guy he interviewed, but he had, he had a really interesting way of, of dealing with offers that came through. He said, if it made him feel, if he got an offer, like, do you want to come and do a talk here? Or do you want to come and do this? Or do you want to do whatever? If his response was, hell yeah, then he'd do it. Anything other than hell yeah, he'd say no. And at the time, I used to think, well, that's a bit ridiculous, that. Surely it's just kind of yes or no. But the thing is, I'll, I'll get some, some offers and some really nice opportunities come through. I mean, I'm so lucky. And I think to myself, yeah, that sounds all right, that actually. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm away from home a bit and it's a bit of a travel and I know I'll be tired. But that, that sounds a good opportunity. And then the time will come round and it's normally like about two hours before I'm due to leave. And particularly with Isaac now and with my wife and stuff. And I just start getting on a downer and I think I, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I really don't want to do this. And I think it's if whenever things come through and this, this could be work, this could be anything. If my reaction to him initially isn't, oh yeah, I really want to do that then I think I've got to be leaning towards no. And that, that's going to mean some, some either people are going to be disappointed or, or me, Kate and Isaac are going to be on the breadline because I'll be earning no money whatsoever. But it's really, it's the old cliche, it's really made me um, readjust my priorities and um, having a family.
Um, two, two final quick ones. Sleep. Now, flipping heck, um, it was this time last year on the Slice of Advice that my reflection was all about sleep. Um, I'd read the Matthew Walker book, I'd read everything I could about sleep, and I had all my system ready to, to help me get asleep. I'd cut out my caffeine, and there were no bright lights, I was having hot showers, getting the temperature right, and not lying in bed for more than 20 minutes awake, all this kind of stuff. And I was into a good routine, you know. And then Isaac's come along and yeah, he's uh, disrupted things uh, a little bit. So one thing I've definitely learned this year is I am particularly bad with no sleep. And I think it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the first thing I do when I wake up is I check my Fitbit, check my stats for the night. And whenever I, I kind of reveal it one digit at a time, and if I see anything less than a six in the hours column... I'm a, again, I just I just feel rubbish immediately. And again, it could well be because I'm expecting to feel rubbish and so on and so forth. But I'll tell you what, my, my brain my brain power is diminishing by the day. So I'll be giving talks and I'll be halfway through a talk and I think, you know what, I don't know what this next sentence is going to be. Or then worst case, and people start challenging me at talks these days. I've been getting a fair bit of stick and a bit of grief about my views on variation and so on and so forth. So people will be asking me very reasonable but challenging questions and I can't formulate a reply. I'm, I'm like a mute. I just can't, can't get me words out. So I've definitely learned that I'm, I'm very bad um, at getting when I get little sleep. But that brings me to my final reflection from this year. And that's one thing I've learned to help me combat it, above and beyond all the stuff that I mentioned last year. Um, and that's white noise. So little baby Isaac, um, he loves a bit of white noise. So that seems to get him to sleep. So we haven't, we haven't bought him one of those um, teddy bears that generates white noise. I mean, we're tight. Well, I'm tight anyway. So we're trying to make do with free stuff. So we've got um, an Alexa echo dots um in in our room so you just say alexa play white noise and it plays white noise continuously on a loop all night and isaac he absolutely loves that um and i tell you now i absolutely love it the first time i did it i thought this is weird this is this is actually quite dis disruptive to my sleep but now even if i stay away in a hotel somewhere bang on a bit of white noise you can get free apps left right and center and it just it stops me thinking. It kind of blocks out my thoughts. Um, a lot of people do this. Another technique that I've used, and you'll have heard about this, is the four, seven, eight technique. So that's where you breathe in for four seconds, you hold that breath for seven seconds, and then you breathe out for eight for eight seconds. Now, I try and do it with seconds, and I can't do it. I'm nearly choking to death. So I, I just kind of count, and they're a bit shorter than seconds. But that does the same thing for me as the white noise. It, it blocks my thoughts, because I'm having to concentrate so much on my count and stuff that it blocks my thoughts and I end up falling to sleep and it's it's thoughts that tend to keep me awake so if we have any insomniacs listening so maybe you listen to this podcast in the middle of the night to help you fall asleep I mean perhaps perhaps this podcast is is the key to this but if you if you do struggle sleeping perhaps bang on a bit of white noise or try this four seven eight technique let's breathe in for four hold it for seven breathe out for eight Anyway, what a wonderful collection of guests that was on, on Slice of Advice. Again, I, I'm so lucky to do this job. I absolutely love sitting down and having these big, long chats with people. I learn so much. But I also love episodes like this where I throw something out there. And then it's it's like Christmas for, for me every day, checking my emails to see who's replied and what's come through and listening to them and so on and so forth. And I, I really hope you get as much out of this compilation episode um, as I did. Um, I'm going to uh, be taking a break over the summer, uh, but uh, I'll be back um, 
for September with some absolutely cracking new episodes. But I just need to need to recharge the batteries a, a little bit. So before I go, just a, a few thank yous. First off, thank you to all the Slice of Advice contributors. Um, it means a lot. It's only five minutes kind of recording time, but it takes time to think about it. You've got to be in a quiet room. You've got to get around to sending it. And the lives of the people that, that um, I uh, have contributed here are absolutely rammed full. So for them to find time, there's nothing in it for them. And it just, just means the world to me. So thank you so much to, to the contributors. And thank you so much to you, the, the, the lovely loyal listeners, for, for tuning in. The, this year, the podcast has had more listeners than ever. Um, the, the, the thousands and thousands of you who are tuning into these and, and the, the lovely comments that you leave, um, honestly, they do just mean the world. Um, if you want to help spread the word about this podcast, um, the easiest thing to do is just um, leave a review if you haven't already wherever you download your podcast from that really does make a difference or uh, tell somebody tell, tell a friend tell a colleague this episode's a particularly good one um, if you're a maths teacher listening and you've got somebody who isn't a maths teacher who you hang around with then recommend this episode very few of the reflections as you'll have uh, picked up on are anything to do with maths whatsoever um, and if you do want to take one step further and sponsor the show then patreon.com forward slash Mr Barton maths is, is the way to do that and thank you so much to the people who've already signed up to do that i mean yeah god almighty it, it, yeah it, it blows it blows me away um, and thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you have heard throughout the show so um as i say um, i'm going to take a break over summer i hope you get a break as well a chance to recharge a chance to enjoy a bit of sunshine family time friend time all the stuff because um, that, that's that's what life's about you know god almighty i'm getting all sentimental and corny now is definitely the time to wrap up you take care of yourselves bye for now <laughs>